Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my trowel. Hello, and you're listening to episode six of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Ash. And I'm Tilly. Today, we'll be looking at Ents, the tree-like folk featured in the lore of Tolkien's Middle Earth. Um, But before we go over our compendium of beasts and learn all about things Ents, I want to introduce you to a fellow traveller here with us on our own side quest, Genoveva Dimova. Archaeobotanist and scribe. How are you today, Jen? I'm very well. Hi, Jen. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I, ah, I feel like a little fangirl. Hi, Jen. <laughs> fangirl. <woo-hoo. laughs> so, what's your specialism, Jen? My specialism is archaeobotany, and I'm also currently training in dendrochronology. So, it has been quite fortuitous to meet you then. It, it's great luck, yes. <laughs> I'm just curious, sorry. So so with archaeobotany, did you do so my knowledge of archaeobotany from my like colleagues at uni was people looking at pollen a lot? Is that something that you did or was it a different side of archaeobotany? It's a different side. I more side I mostly do macroplant material, so I look at seeds, uh, cereal grains, that sort of thing. I don't quite do the micro, micro things like the pollen. Mm, okay. I have to say it always looked very <laughs> I don't want to say tedious, but it did look kind of <laughs> tedious because they'd literally just be looking at these tiny little things and they'd have to be picking them out with tweezers. And I mean, I look at tiny little things, but still I was always like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it does involve fair. a lot of tweezers. Uh, I've seen I've seen Jen over like hazelnut shells or something. I think it was like just picking <laughs> things out with tweezers before. Like, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> just keep going. Like, okay, cool. that's that's the boring part. But then once you start looking at the samples you have, and once you start finding exciting things, it can get very exciting. Hmm. So you yeah. have to. Look What's at the most tiny exciting thing that you found then? Um, the most exciting thing. <laughs> Sorry, I can tell you. Immediately, because it's a project I'm currently working on. So we have five corpolites, which for the non-archaeologists, it's a mineralized shed. So we have five of them that just came up from London, from a cesspit. And in one of them, I found lots of grape seeds, which is quite exciting because you don't normally associate grapes with Britain. So we'll see if it was an import, if they were growing them there, we'll try and find out. Um, But the exciting thing is I found a big corn cocoa seed. And corn cocoa mm. is extremely poisonous. That's really, really bad news if you eat it. And obviously someone ate it because I found it in their poop. Ooh. So it's um, very hallucinogenic. This person had an absolutely horrible time. And you can actually find out a lot about the life of a random medieval person just looking at their excrement. Wow. So they, they took this co- cockle seed, right? Mm-hmm. And then corn cocoa, yeah. 
prong cockle and they've started to hallucinate and then yeah, die. Yeah, there are all sorts of <gasps> mad stories from like medieval scribes about like there's one he went to a village somewhere in England, I think, and he found the whole village like they were gathered on the village square and half the village was running around in circles, barking like dogs. And the other village, the other half of the village was standing, pretending to be drowning in the middle of the square. And they think that what happened was they got corn cocoa poisoning. And it's <gasps> very insidious because it's a con- contaminant of cereal grain and it's the same size as cereal grain. So you can very easily miss it and just end up eating it. <sighs> Oh, and wow. I guess from the sounds of it, it's not then nice hallucinations. Like it's no, no. Happy, happy hallucinations. <laughs> no. Bad hallucinations. Oh, no. I wonder what you hallucinate. That People are pretending to drown. I mean, Goodness, that's very exciting. They could be werewolves. <laughs> right? That might make sense. It's all linked together. <laughs> all starting to connect, Demi. <laughs> So that's that's very exciting. What's your most frustrating thing that you find about your your topic? I think more than any, well, more than most other specialisms, we really depend on preservation. So if we have poor preservation, it really can limit how much you can tell. And like for most of my material that I look at, sometimes we get waterlogged material, but that's rare. So mostly we look at charred material. So for plant material to get charred, you need to have some sort of uh, something needs to have gone wrong, like. Either it's something small gone wrong, like somebody burnt their dinner, and that's why we found it, or it could be a big catastrophic event, a big fire, and that's how we end up with lots of burnt plant material. And that also means that the things that we tend to find tend to be things that end up in the fire, like cereal grains, because you need to dry them near the fire, or hazelnut shell, because you can use it as kindling. But we don't find all sorts of things that would have been very important in everyday life, like leafy vegetables or medicines are very rarely found because they don't survive. And in, when it's in the fire, does that also, I mean, depending on the kind of fire, would that affect how well you could identify it as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You need a very specific type of fire so things burn nicely and don't turn to ash. Hey. Hey, that's me. Hey. <laughs> hey, I've been very nicely. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, so that's quite frustrating then for you, that you can't find the other aspects of of a life cycle, of a, of a life ways. Yeah, it, it can be, but sometimes you get beautiful preservation. You get lots of waterlogged material, from example, from cities or from bottoms of ditches. So it is sometimes, rarely, but it does happen that we have beautiful preservation. And how did you get into it? Did you want to specialize in archaeobotany or did you just kind of fall into it a little bit? I kind of fell into it. I did material culture at university and then they were looking <laughs> they were looking for a post-ex technician to do flotation and sorting and look at finds and things like that. So I applied for that job and I got the job and then our archaeobotanist needed help and she was like, you're quite good. Do you want to be trained? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I love how so many people accidentally got into their specialism. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They tell you all the time, you need to make sure you're you're specializing in something and then people just kind of fall into it or someone Mm -hmm. sees something in you and then they go, oh yeah, you'd be really good at this. (laughs) It's fantastic. So what plans are you doing in the future? Have you got any more sites that are coming up? Yeah, I've got some dendrochronology coming up, which I'm very excited about. We've got some samples from Rosling Castle that we'll try to date. So hopefully Mm -hmm. that gives us a good date. And we have a huge project coming up, which I don't know how much I can talk about because it's professional archaeology. So you're meant to keep it quite secret. But a big uh, waterlogged project, which I'm Mm -hmm. very excited about. Is it Mass Farm? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not saying they finished with that one, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. Is it this one? one? Is it this one? Is it this one? <laughs> tell us, tell us, tell us. Very cool one. No, no, no hints, nothing. We won't, we won't tease it no out. Spoilers, no spoilers. No spoilers. No. <laughs> but the big question is, Jen, do you enjoy reading fantasy? I love reading fantasy. Fantasy is my favorite genre in the world and I read it all the time. Ah, so what's your favorite kind of book series or favorite standalone book? Oh, this is very difficult. And I'm really glad that you told me you asked this question because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> and I have, have settled on an answer. I'm going to go for Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Yes! <laughs> oh, Terry, you've got another disc <laughs> I have been trying to wrangle Terry Pratchett references into every single episode. And oh, I didn't brilliant. even have to do it for this episode. And I didn't write the script for this one. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any. I'm so sorry. I'm all Lord of the Rings in this one. <laughs> I'm sure Jen and I could wrangle in some. Yeah, <laughs> please do. It'll go exactly over my head, like completely. But <laughs> that's cool. Um, and so that's your absolute favorite. What is it about the Discworld books? I really enjoy the humor, obviously. Mm-hmm. I love the world building and I love how Terry Pratchett has all these really deep and interesting social commentary, but he mm-hmm. kind of filters it through this very absurd world and kind of that allows him to look at social problems in our world, but kind of one step distant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which on, one's your me. favorite? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Nightwatch. <laughs> Nightwatch. Oh, Nightwatch. That's, I mean, that's the deepest. <laughs> like, that's definitely the most, yeah, deep, deep thought I've one. I've only read, I've only read one. Which one? You read Making Money, right? Making Money, yeah. yeah. Oh, Making I mean, Money was not bad, well. yeah. That is yeah. a very good one too. Uh-huh. I really like that one. I also like I think you like The Witches. The, oh yes, Ash. you would love the way I've given her Weird Sisters to read. Yes. Oh <laughs> yeah, she, she keeps telling me she'll read it, but, but she has a TBR the size of Everest, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's somewhere uh, in there. Yeah, and I just downloaded about fifty books, so uh, <laughs> I need to get through that quite quickly. Jen, a little end tells me that you might have a book coming out. <gasps> yes, I do. Do you want me to tell you about it? <laughs> Yes. No, nah, let's not hear about it. Let's not bother. No, no, that's <laughs> fine. That's absolutely We just mentioned fine. it for the hell of it. <laughs> is it a fantasy book? It is a fantasy book, yeah. It's <sighs> fantasy inspired by Bulgarian and Slavic folklore. And what is it called? It's called Foul Days and it's coming out next year, next June. Can we get a bit of a, like a blurb? What's it about? I can give you a go. Um, so it's about a witch who trades away her magic to escape her city, which is full of monsters, and also her monster's ex, but then immediately regrets it because she finds herself without any powers outside of the world that surrounds her city, and she finds out that the monster's ex is still after her, and now she can't defend herself. Uh, don't you just hate it when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> monstrous exes, man. Oh, <laughs> what God, <like>? the worst. <laughs> and guess what, Tilly? I was actually there when Jen was writing it. <gasps> you had the behind the scenes. And the behind the scenes. And oh, yes, we were uh, stuck together in a very small room in St. Kilda. <gasps> we were. We were both writing at the same time. Jen got hers out, done, dusted, sorted, <laughs> and I'm still writing. No, it's your turn. <laughs> and how many references to archaeobotany are in the uh, book? 
not that many. I do have quite a few herbs mentioned, so the way to process the potions. So yeah, I did manage to sneak a few references. I can definitely tell you, listener, that it is a fantastic book. I've done the beta reading for it, and it's very good. So I would recommend it. I already have it on pre-order. Oh, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll also read it in our Archaea book club because that sounds like something yes. that we would enjoy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's related to historic, you know, folklore and things. So mm-hmm. It's yeah. got a lot of folklore in it, hasn't it? Yeah, maybe we could have a folklore month. Like, cool. Folklore Sorted. Done. Sorted. Excellent. Well, you really are an expert on all these things, creatures, archaeobotany. So it was very, very good that we met you in the Prancing Pony Inn then. Mm-hmm. So, Jen, we've got a situation, okay? And we really need your help with it. Both Tilly and I were commissioned by the Hobblebush Historical Society of Fangholm Forest, okay, to record the last march of the Ents. Unbeknownst to us, it was an active battle site, which uh, you know really messed up our archaeological research <laughs> questions. But luckily, there were no orcs in sight. Uh, the place was pretty much abandoned. Ancient weapons littered the barren earth, and the scent of sulfur was like almost too much to bear. Of course, somebody brought curried haddock into the site hut for lunch, so oh, we were all a bit out of sorts that day. Call. That was awful. Oh, yeah, was horrible. So we were just taking yeah. this huge sample of very charcoal, charred, carbonized wood. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this huge tree started talking to us. He introduced himself as Treebeard. My jaw hit the floor. Tilly was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And he asked us to refrain from sampling his leg. Turns out, Treebeard lost a bit of his trunk through the battle, and well... We had kind of already packed it away. Mm -hmm. We explained this all to him and what had happened. He completely understood and he gave us consent to be sampled. But now we have this job to do and it's an important to the future archaeological record, but we're really stuck. So the Hobblebush Historical Society wants us to date and identify not only the fallen ends, but the living ones too. How do we go about this, do you think? I do have a few ideas. Oh, I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> By the way, can I say, I just, of course, I'm a member of this as well and totally a part of this. And it wasn't a scenario that Ash wrote for this podcast recording. The Hobblebush <laughs> Historical Society is the cutest name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the um, HH, what is it? The HH is a brilliant historical society that's completely canon. Uh, I don't know. It's in the notes if you ever look at it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Tolkien totally approved of it. Yeah, I believe it was in some some quote, right, from Aragorn to, to Gandalf. It was like, oh, yes, Fangorn Forest, nothing moves in there apart from the occasional administrator from the Hobblebush Historical Society. Yes, sending you emails every now and then, updating you on all the lectures that they're having in the Fangorn Forest. Yeah. Oh, now I want to make this a real thing. We can. We Maybe have. We can. It's canon can now. Be, this is our newsletter. Okay, listeners, we have a new podcast newsletter and it's called the Hobblebush <laughs> Historical Society. Exactly. Anyway, exactly. sorry. I just had to chime in and say that because I really appreciated your, uh, your creativity on that one. <laughs> Thank you very much. But you know what? I'm quite hungry. So I think we need mm. to go and get a second breakfast maybe. Even thirds. <gasps> I want another pint, definitely. And maybe a pie. Oh, I mean, that sounds good. My stomach's been rumbling. Yeah. So, Tilly, go on. It's your time to buy. You go up to the bar, get Hi. it. And me and Jen will he- sit here, discuss a little bit. We'll get settled and then we'll be right back. 
Oh, I needed that pint, really filled my health bar back up. Now let's dive into Ents. What are they? Who are they? And where do they come from? As always, there will be spoilers for Tolkien's books, but if you haven't read or seen any Lord of the Rings media, then where have you been since 1956? <laughs> that, let's give you a quick overview of what and who Ents are. Oh, excellent. Yes. Do you know who Ents are, Tilly? Do you know what they are? Well, ah, see, I was about to say tree. But they are no tree. <laughs> this I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they're they're the and they were told the shepherds of the forest or something. I seem to remember, but actually, I that's sort yeah. of as much as I know really when it comes to the kind of folklore side of it. Yeah, yeah. Jen, do you know much about Ents? Well, I kind of have to because my speciality. So, oh, yes, yeah, I know all about true. Ents. True, true, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, if the listener doesn't know about Ents, Ents are also known as Onodrim. They are a race of Middle Earth um, who were created by Yavanna as shepherds of the trees and forests. So you're right, Tilly, they were. Yes. To protect them against orcs and other enemies, Ents are tree-like creatures who over millennia have become more like the trees that they herded. So their sizes, their colorings differ, but usually each ent represents a species of tree that they look after. They were also, oddly enough, taught to speak by the elves. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So what does an ent kind of look like? We've got a couple of passages um, that I could read to you from the two towers where Treebeard pops up. Often it's Pippin, talking or recalling but basically they look like they said they found they were looking at the most extraordinary face it belonged to a large man-like almost troll-like figure at least 14 foot high very sturdy with a tall head and hardly any neck the arms were not wrinkled but it covered in a brown smooth skin The large feet had several toes on each. The lower part of the long face was covered by a sweeping grey beard, bushy, almost twiggy at the roots, thin, mossy at the ends. But the moment the hobbits noted nothing but the eyes. They were deep eyes, now surveying them slow and solemn, but penetrating. They were brown, shot with green light. Pippin actually recalls that he felt that there was once an enormous well behind them, filling up with ages of memory, long, slow, steady thinking. But their surface was sparkling with the present, like sun shimmering in the outer leaves of a vast tree or on the ripples of a very deep lake. Oh, so, this is making me want to read what they look like. <laughs> I know, I'm just such a good reader. <laughs> you are. <laughs> But no, yeah, so that's what they look like. And it makes you think of ancientness, doesn't it? They're very old, Mm -hmm. they're very wise, and they know a lot. They've seen a lot. The word ent actually kind of comes from Anglo-Saxon. Word meaning enter, which means giant. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they're very tall, they're Mm -hmm. tree-like, huge. And often ents or tree folk are found in other types of media. Tolkien kind of, you know set the standard for them but they're found in things like dragon age harry potter star wars chronicles of narnia wheel of time even marvel's gardens of the galaxy groot he's a tree folk i am groot yeah (laughs) i am groot (laughs) or even world of warcraft as well so have you read any books other than lord of the rings that feature ends i have read uprooted by naomi novik 
Oh, yeah. I didn't know that one. Uprooted. That's a fantastic book. That's one of my favorite fantasy yeah, books. Yeah, it's a really good book. And yeah, the whole plot is kind of centered around these three folk that in the beginning we think were evil, but maybe they're not so evil. Yeah, that's true. They do. They kind of like, and spoilers right now for anyone who has not read Uprooted, but they kind of like consume people, if, if that's right. And there's like a mania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. exactly it. Yeah, I think they kind of, they take over your mind or something like that. It was very creepy. Mm. I remember it was very well described. Yeah, I've got images of them running away from them as they're like encroaching uh, yeah. on, on their, their town and stuff and fighting and there's a dragon guy and stuff. It's all it's all very good, actually. Yeah, I didn't even think of that one. Wow. Isn't yeah, that's a good one. some other like horror book that basically The Little Shop of Horrors was based on with the Triffids? The Triffids? Oh, yeah, I've read that one. Um, what's his face? Uh, Winter? Is that as John Winter? No, no. no. I, I have no idea, I must say. I, I suggested it because I was just thinking, Fiend, you see more. But like when you were talking yes, about like, yeah. <laughs> but, Fiend, but, yeah, I and I yeah, it's the Triffids, right? It's the book that it's based yeah. off. I haven't read it, but uh It's yeah. very good. Yeah? Ah, what yeah. and what do the Triffids do? What do they do? They oh, eat God. people? Uh, I honestly I read it as a teenager, which was a few years ago now. Um, so I think I just have a very very vivid recollection of, of one of the first scenes. Was this guy goes into his garden and that weird plant has turned up, and it wasn't a tree. It was like described as a sort of a weird I don't know almost what is it called fly eater plant. Yeah, uh, was, Venus flytrap. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. So he's like a plant person. Yeah. I don't think plant they're people. Folk. I think they're like aliens who come and, and yeah. stuff, try ah, to yeah. control people's minds, but they're plants. Yeah. There oh. seems to be a thing where the trees control people, oh. isn't there? I oh, wonder if there's be, something yeah. something going on there, but that doesn't seem to be in Lord of the Rings, really, does no. it? I, I mean, guess because got- Tolkien sort of had the that he, he loved nature and he sort of mm. almost had that uh what's the word not all respect i guess respect for for forests and woodlands whereas maybe some other authors might almost have a fear of of the kind of forests and and mm. the, the vastness of them i don't know this is this is me just going purely mm. off tangent now but uh that could be i guess sort of the how it yeah. affects there's sort of two ways to look at, at trees and nature and forests and things i suppose mm. i think yeah, it's really interesting true. yeah because mm-hmm. um i think in Tolkien's description, they're pretty much just nice and good. And in a lot of other media, I can think of the trees were kind of threatening, not always evil, but at least there is something scary about them. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Yeah, there is a fear of woodland, isn't there? I suppose mm. it kind of calls back to when when we are hunter-gatherers and there's wolves and things running around the place. And the dark, I mean, the dark is terrifying. So yeah, plants mm-hmm. and stuff, unknown plants, maybe you'd eat something thinking it's cereal and then you end up going mad, you know? <laughs> think, uh-huh. Pretending to be a dog and run around on the village tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just purely, purely hypothetical. Okay. Yeah. But it's interesting. So, it makes you wonder what people in the past would have thought about trees and, and woodlands and things as well. Yeah. Whether they'd have been afraid of them or whether they'd have... Revered them. Revered them. Well, they used hmm. a lot of the wood, obviously, to make structures and stuff, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. And there's, yeah. yeah, there's often ones where they, like, burial sites and Neolithic kind of monuments where they, they turn the roots upside down so the roots are showing. So yeah. they're quite dramatic, don't they? Mm. They put them in, in big, uh, like, 
stitches and stuff. Mm. It, it would have been quite terrifying in the mist and stuff to see that. I think trees and they had weren't there some trees I can't remember what time period it was from though I think it was later where they used to tie things to them or something like that it was almost like a kind of I'm gonna say the word ritual um, (laughs) and it still goes on in quite a lot of places today as well and I'm trying to think of where it was I think it was somewhere in Scotland, because oh, one of my classmates, I remember at university, did her thesis on it, on these trees that kind of you, you go and you'll tie a scarf or a piece of ribbon or, or something to it. And it, it's kind of the memory attached to it, but also the the feeling and all this kind of thing. So, yeah. I, and and you had oh, my favorite. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now. Um, my favorite was the <laughs> there's some Viking church from after they were uh, converted to Christianity. And it's on the site of another viking site which is also on the site of they like dug down and they found out there was a church and then under that was another viking site but like a pagan site and then under that was this massive tree that had clearly been felled to make way but so it was sort of like oh it the tree was kind of already an important place and that was why they then put this pagan site on it and then the church on it ah like a palimpsest Mm. yeah 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 that's That's very cool well i mean that's the thing a lot of kind of early I hate to say the, like pagan because we don't know what what yeah, they believe yeah. <laughs> uh, ritual <laughs> and religion <laughs> and stuff and belief that it's often around kind of water trees mm. nature mm. it's all into the earth and yeah the the well I mean if you think Viking Yagrasil yes of course mm. I mean, the yeah. world tree it's it is a sentient kind of being almost mm. that is the whole crux of the cosmos really and but if it's not there you know ragnarok happens and and so it's it's trees are in they connect us to the world a lot of the time don't Mm. they and they are what we would use to build our shelters and yeah yeah they're they're really a big part of human life (laughs) trees and we can't live without trees yeah. You know, I am yeah. actually wondering if that's why like these threatening figures of trees appear often in folklore and mythology and then in fantasy. Because I feel like we have a bit of a like, sense of guilt of how we <laughs> treat our forests. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's a way of moving away from those beliefs too. Like, mm. you know, making the tree seem scary rather than lovely, like tree beard and very polite. <laughs> 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 you know? Maybe it's meant to to scare you a little bit away mm. from that kind of stuff. Maybe so you won't. Yeah, yeah, you won't go near it. Maybe. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. But what's what's your favorite type of uh, depiction of Ents? I mean, I love Groot. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> do. But I also love Lord of the Rings. I think it's fantastic. I mean. Treebeard is an iconic character. You know, if someone says Treebeard, I think everybody knows what he looks like. Yeah. You can see him, especially from the Peter Jackson uh, films. Although, so, what's your favorite? I, I have to say, after having after you read out that section, I think you said the arms were not wrinkled but covered in brown, smooth skin. That to me, really, I think probably because I'm I've now watched the films so much. Even though I did technically read the books before watching the films just because I've watched the film so much, I have that vision in my head now of Treebeard. So the thought of him with smooth skin mm-hmm. is really weird. <laughs> you think of him like a stick man with yeah, little arms. Right? Like, like, you know. <laughs> it feels like, it's like, you know, like Mickey Mouse gloves on almost. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but yes, I need to think, sorry, Jen, you go first. Cause I need to think about my favorite one. 
Okay, um, I'm going to go for The Witcher, which we also didn't mention. <gasps> I can't remember if they're in the books, but they're definitely in the games. They are like these Slavic folklore creatures called Leshi or Lesnik, which are exactly three people, and they're usually quite threatening and scary, especially if you piss them off. And um, in the games, they are extremely hard. And well, at the start, and then they get easy, but they are quite <laughs> threatening. Yeah, that's a really good one. Oh my god, you you're coming up with all the ones here. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, which I didn't even think of which. Yeah, she's an archaeologist. She knows every tree. In the world. <laughs> every tree and every fantasy. Thing. Every tree, every fantasy. I'm trying to I think. Did I came prepared. You did. Yeah. You did. Well done. I don't think we did. <laughs> I know I forgot no, about this question. <laughs> so I have no, but the wit, that's a fantastic one. They are really difficult to 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 kill in the game. Okay. I remember oh, that. Actually. Because you shouldn't kill trees. Yeah. I mean how do, I mean it's fire, obviously, and you'd use the hmm. was it the Oh my god, what's this? Igni. It's, yeah, it's Igni. You'd use Igni to get rid of them. Hmm. Yeah, but they are quite quite hard to kill. And they're overpowered as well. I remember having to like yeah. beast up for it <laughs> to try and go for, or, you know, turn the difficulty down. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, you think... Oh, sorry, carry on. No, Tilly. I'm just trying to remember. It's not a depiction of a tree, but it's sort of... Did you ever read the Tamora Pierce ones about... I can't remember now what the series was called. It wasn't the one with Alana, the, the female knight. It was mm. like four teenagers and they basically each had a certain power over a particular element so one of them controlled water one of them controlled like fire and one of them had a like affinity with plants so he could control plants and things and that was quite oh. cool but i guess that's a bit different to plants being it's in control really cool, themselves though. i love plant cool. magic in books yeah uh, tomorrow it's one of the tomorrow ps ones i can find it and we will put it in the show notes <laughs> so. yeah please do please <laughs> yeah, do yeah, yeah. but oh um can you feel that? Oh, it's going like so cold in here and yes. weirdly dark. Hmm. Is that? Do you think that's one of the Nazgul again? Oh, you, man. You'd think they'd stop hanging around here since Sauron, but yeah. Yeah. oh no, we better hurry. Uh, Jen, Tilly, get behind the bar. Okay. <laughs> So we need to cut this episode short, um, but don't worry, we'll continue the next episode with part two. In the meantime, if there's any suggestions that people have for an episode, such as an archaeological concept that they want to explain through fantasy, or something from fantasy they want to see from an archaeological viewpoint, get in touch. You can contact us via email or social media. All the contact info can be found in the show notes. Ooh, there's mead back here. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.